not know me. I'm our director of Young Family Ministries here at Riverbend Church. If there are any guests this morning, I just want to extend a welcome to you. We are so glad that you are here. Riverbend family, I trust that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. With family, friends, I hope you followed through with what Pastor Bobby exhorted us, that you shared the light of Christ with somebody in your home this holiday. And then there were some other of you crazies that came and joined us for the turkey trot. Um, Thank you for that. As you know, we had a turkey trot on Thanksgiving morning for missions. Um, Over $2,300 was raised just for for missions. Um, So thank you. And 100 contestants. In fact, um, Carol Edwards, longtime member, Carol Edwards completed the 5K. What is your excuse? What is your excuse? It was a great time. We're so thankful um, for your participation in that. As you can see with the decorations, though, uh, we turn uh, to the Christmas season. And it's an exciting time for many reasons. There are, of course, you get to see family. There are gifts involved. Everybody seems to have a little bit of an extra pep in their step. But it is the time of the year that... We often, as we consider the birth of Jesus Christ, get to consider a great doctrinal truth. The doctrine or teaching that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and became a man. That is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is no ordinary event In fact, Scripture attests to its uniqueness through many amazing things, one of which was the appearing of many angels onto the scene around shepherds. And they had something to say about this event. Luke 2, you know this probably pretty well. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Jesus becoming a man is great news for the world, is it not? He is the Savior of all who believe. He is the way we have peace with God. But often in this Christmas season, we we do focus on the fact that Jesus became a man. We even may focus on the fact that he came to die. But we don't often emphasize the reasons why it was necessary for him to take on flesh. Maybe some of the specifics of that. The Hebrew author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, will not allow you 
to miss some of those huge reasons why Jesus had to take on flesh. And I hope today that after seeing some of these reasons, you will worship Christ even more leaving this place than you came in. And you will see from this passage, this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18, these few verses you will see how Jesus had to take on flesh to destroy and undo and eradicate our three greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. You will see that, Lord willing, this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled this morning to even have breath in our lungs We've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. There are those in this room at this very moment that are living life in rebellion to you. You have given them breath this day that they might turn to the Savior of the world. There may be those in this room this morning who have called upon the name of Christ in faith, but they've become lukewarm in their affections toward you. And the things of this world are starting to catch their gaze. Lord, I pray that you would stop them in their tracks this morning, turn their affections and their attention and their desires and their pursuits on you. And there are those that are running well by your grace. And I pray that you would help them to have a mentality where they excel still more. We desperately need you this morning. We pray that you would make yourself known to us in your word. Keep my lips from error. May anything that I speak that is a mistake. May that be so far removed from the minds of these people. But what is true from your word, let it stick, let it stay. And may they worship you greater, we pray. Amen. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, if you're not there already, it's a great passage. By the way, I'm kind of cheating a little bit because our BFG our Bible fellowship group that meets in Sunday mornings, we're going through Hebrews. And uh, so if you want to continue through the book of Hebrews, come with us. You know, you're welcome uh, to do it. Last week, I taught through up through verse 13, and I thought, hey, you know what? With the Christmas season here, what better thing could I preach to you than this? This is wonderful news. The book of Hebrews, for those of you who don't know... It's really simple in its intent. The author of Hebrews is concerned in some way that the people who have heard about Christ may have missed it or may be falling away from that truth that they once held near. So he has a singular focus, and that is to establish Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, Jesus is superior to all. That is the intention. 
chapter 1 of Hebrews was about Jesus being greater than angels. Of course, that may be obvious to some of us, but there was a lot of angel worship going on in this time. Jesus is so far greater than angels because he created angels, right? But then chapter 2, after establishing how mighty, how exalted, how preeminent and superior Jesus Christ is, chapter 2, specifically from verse 9 on, brings into focus the astounding doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That the King of kings and Lord of lords would take on flesh and be made for a little while lower than the angels that he is so far superior to. It's an amazing doctrine. He took on flesh in chapter 2, verse 9 through 13. There's, he had to taste death for everyone. He brought many sons to glory. He had to be qualified through his sufferings. He had to sanctify the brethren. And he calls you and I brethren with Christ. If you are in Christ, he is not ashamed to call you brethren. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 18 is a continuation of on this wonderful doctrine of the incarnation and specifically informing us why he had to take on flesh. There is no salvation if Jesus, the Son of God, does not take on flesh. So, let's read verse 14 as we get into it. Therefore, Since the children, who are the children being spoken of here? Look right up to verse 13. It says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. The children here are those he came to save. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let's pause there for a moment. Looking at verse 14, again, the children are those he came to save. These children, they share in flesh and blood. That word share means, like you and I, it is common to both of us to have flesh and have blood. It's natural to us. We share in that. But the word there for Christ partaking of the same means he is partaking in something that is not natural to him. We share in flesh and blood. Christ partook in what is not natural to him for a reason. My goal is to reveal through the text four reasons why it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to take on flesh. And the first reason we see here at the end of verse 14, and it is this, to crush Satan who wields the power of death. Let's read this uh, verse once more. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death 
he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus took on flesh to destroy, neutralize, subdue, and render ineffective and powerless Satan himself. How does he do this? He completely disarms Satan by destroying the weapon that he wields against mankind. How does he do that? The text says Jesus Christ disarms Satan through his death. Isn't that odd to you? Of all the great battle stories, when you are conquering, you normally achieve victory through life and not being the one to die. The amazing thing about this and the plan of God is that Jesus Christ would undo death through death. Isn't there a great irony there? That through this death, he had to take on flesh and blood so that he could die. But let's discuss a few of the details here. What does it mean that Satan wields the power of death? Well, the world is under the sway of the wicked one, the Bible says. And the main weapon Satan possesses against mankind is death. But does this mean he determines when people die or not? Your answer to that would be no. There is one sovereign, one alone. Job says this, mankind's days are determined with God. The number of months are with you, God, and his limits you have set so they cannot pass. That is God, the only sovereign. Satan doesn't have that power to determine when one dies or not. The word death here then must mean something different or at least more than just the act of dying. The word death here must not just mean physical death, although it's part of that, certainly. Physical death is a result of the fall. It's not even referring to the actual moment of separation from the spirit, of the spirit from the body, but rather this weapon that Satan wields, the power of death, has everything to do with judgment for sin to come. Satan knows his days are limited, but he also knows there is a fearful expectation of judgment, not just for himself, but for those who die in their sins. He knows God is holy. He knows God will not tolerate sin. He knows judgment is coming. And verse 15 says he enslaves through the fear of death. Satan, who knows his days are limited, of course, wants to see each and every person to their unrepentant, hopeless deaths, where they will experience the judgment of God on sins. He is like a drowning individual who is pulling everyone down with him. This power of death then must be the sting associated with death. 
a fear, an expectation of judgment on sins from a righteous God. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, meaning your sin puts you at odds with God. When you die, if that is the way you die, you will be righteously judged for all eternity. Satan wields this great sting of death against man as he deceives, accuses, and holds the fear of judgment for sins over their head. How is it that Jesus' death renders Satan powerless? That's what this verse says, isn't it? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death That is the devil. You see, Jesus Christ, it would not have been enough for Jesus Christ to take on flesh and blood and that's it. That would not be enough to defeat death. He must experience death and he must overcome death. He had to experience it and overcome it to pave a way so that you and I might too overcome it. This is is how his death could render Satan powerless. No man could ever overcome this death prior to Christ. No one will ever overcome death apart from Christ. The power of death is mighty and left to ourselves, we could never overcome it. But Christ sharing in the flesh and blood of man died. He experienced death but he did not stay dead as we just sang. Three days later, he burst forth from that grave. He rose victorious and triumphant. And this is why the scriptures speak to this amazing moment like this. John 14, 18 through 19 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In other words, because Jesus defeated death and rose victorious and triumphant, so will you. 2 Timothy 1.10 says this, Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, when he disarmed the rulers of, and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them. Like a snake whose fangs and poison have been removed, so is Satan when Jesus rose from that grave. He cannot even sink his teeth into those who identify in Christ. Yes, Satan still tempts. Yes, he still works against God. But the power of death that he once wielded has been destroyed. How? Because sin has been paid for through the death of Christ. Secondly, and and close to this as well and related to it, the second reason why Jesus had to take on flesh is to free you from slavery to the fear of death. This again goes hand in hand with point number one. 
that he first had to crush and disarm Satan by doing away with his weapon, and in so doing, he frees you from slavery to the fear of death. Verse 15, let's read. And it says, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is part of Satan wielding the power of death is this fear of death that enslaves. This fear of death absolutely enslaves. You've probably seen it in yourself at some points in time and you've maybe seen it in others. The vast majority of humans are pursuing a way to escape death. Whether that be from choosing not to do dangerous things or dieting or exercising or training their body in such a way where they live a long time to cheat death. In fact, there are many people in the world today actively researching ways to prolong your life and delay this death. This fear of death enslaves us so much so that often we are terribly frightened when a near-death experience occurs. Why are humans born in their natural state with this sense of fear of death? Well, there are plenty of reasons, but a few to consider here. One, we often fear what we don't know and understand. We don't fully understand everything that happens at death, so there is a fear of the unknown. Secondly, there is a fear of losing what we have on earth. For example, many who don't know Christ view death simply as the end. And therefore, there is a great fear that death will cause you to lose access to your family, to your friends, to the things you've achieved, and all of the stuff that you have. Death is then viewed as an enemy. Death is to be feared and viewed as one that takes and steals. But the greatest reason there is fear of death is because all mankind knows in their hearts that God is real and judgment is coming. You want to know why we are born with an innate sense of a fear of death? It's because we know, the scriptures say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish to think that. We all know it. Romans 1 speaks to, even in the things that were created, we can see his divine nature and eternal power written all over it. We know judgment is coming. But in Christ, because Jesus took on flesh and came to die and raise victorious, he came to free you from that fear. Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of mankind disarmed the devil, rendering him powerless by defeating death. And in defeating death, you need not fear. This freedom from the fear of death is only for those in Christ. This freedom from the fear of death is a freedom that mankind outside of Christ cannot relate to. Consider what the scriptures say the believer's perspective towards death is. It is totally changed 
from before you knew Christ, when you feared it because you knew judgment was coming, to now knowing Christ who has conquered it, your perspective has changed to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's almost like this victorious taunt. In Christ, there is no sting to death. It says, we read this earlier, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no victory over death if Jesus does not take on flesh to become a man and die for our sins. How about this perspective? Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. You all will be viewed as crazy for that. You're talking about death being gain, but I view death as taking everything away. That's not the Christian's hope. That is not the Christian's perspective. Do you live in that freedom? Do you live in it that you truly believe? Not that you go out seeking death, but that should death come, you are not afraid. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, death is merely a portal from this life to Jesus Christ, who is far better, as Hebrews has been saying. And it's not just some temporary experience where you put in some tokens and enjoy heaven for three hours. We are talking about an eternity with Christ. Death has no sting now and forevermore for those who are in Christ. But that's not all. Thirdly, he took on flesh to give help to you. Descendants. Of Abraham. Verse 16 says this For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. This is a really interesting statement here. And once again, it's, it's a good reason why you read all of Scripture in context. He's mentioning angels here because he's been talking about angels in chapter 1. He brings them up again, and he is going to compare angels with mankind to show you how great God loves you. What's been established in Hebrews already is this. Jesus is greater than angels. Mankind have less power and might than angels. It would seem that mankind then are inferior. Jesus only came to die for mankind. Notice, he did not take on the form or likeness of an angel to atone for their sins. You say, well, when did angels sin? Well, we know just by the existence of Satan himself and the demons that angels have sinned. And this passage says that any angel, when they rebelled, would be left in their rebellion forever with no hope of return. One and done, 
rebel against God, you're out. You're cut off. The way to God would never be reopened. As angelic rebels, they are doomed to the eternal fate of separation from God and an eternity of holy wrath being poured out upon them forever. Is that unfair of God? Absolutely not. It is, of course, not unfair because God is holy, just, and good. It would be unjust of God not to punish sin. And not just lightly punish it, but punish it to its full degree. He does not owe salvation to any of his rebellious creatures. Verse 16 says, assuredly, he does not give help to angels. There's no salvation offered for angels. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. You would do well to consider this truth. If it is true that Jesus does not owe mercy and grace to angels or any creature, then it would also be true that he does not owe it to you and I. And yet, in his kindness, in his mercy, he came to rescue not angels, but you. And the only way to do that was to become like you, was to become a descendant of Abraham. Galatians 3 actually speaks of Jesus himself being the seed of Abraham. But even more than that, those who are identified in Christ through faith are called seeds of Abraham. This, word, this phrase, seed of Abraham, does not primarily speak of the Jews. In fact, it only speaks of Jews and Gentiles of faith. He came to help the sons of Abraham. You say, well, where's that in scripture? Galatians 3, 7 says, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Jesus took on flesh and became the seed of Abraham to offer help to those who would believe. And you say, did we need help? Absolutely. You know it. If you know yourself, if you have sinned one time in your life, you desperately need help because that sin alone is worthy of judgment forever. You know you need help. This is why it's declared that this is good news of great joy. It's also why on that Christmas kind of morning scene where the angels burst forth and they're saying glory to God in the highest, it's because they're amazed. Angels aren't omniscient. They're watching God's plan unfold. They are amazed at what is happening, that Jesus, the Son of God, would take on flesh to die this is why 1 Peter speaks of them longing to look into the things of salvation because angels have never and will never experience salvation like us. Those that were lost of the angels were never found. 
but you and I that were lost were found by Christ. This is amazing. It is God's mercy and kindness that he would send his son to offer you undeserved help. What a privilege. Fourthly, he came, took on flesh to be your high priest who atones for your sin. Look, at, look with me at verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That brethren, that's also mentioned in verse 11 earlier, it says he's not ashamed to call you brethren. He had to be made like his brethren, you and I, in all things. That means not just flesh and blood, but in the sufferings, in the temptations, in the dying. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He would be a merciful high priest who has experienced the same things we've experienced, yet without sin. He can sympathize with us in our weakness and extend us mercy, praise the Lord. But it's not just enough for him to be merciful. He must be a faithful high priest. He must be qualified for this position. To be a high priest, you had to be taken from among the people. If Jesus Christ does not take on flesh, he cannot be taken from among the people. By taking on flesh, he can be one taken from among the people, yet without sin, and not only qualified to the, to the position, but able to do the duty of a high priest, which is this, present a sacrifice for the propitiation or atonement of sins. That is what the high priest did. The high priest's duty was to act as a mediator between God and men so that God might not consume man because of their sin. There were sacrifices offered over and over and over again to temporarily stop the wrath of God. We know that it was just temporary because Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse us or take away our sins. This is why the sacrifices of old were offered day after day, year after year. They needed, and we needed, a better high priest who could offer a better sacrifice. Jesus took on flesh to be made like you and I in every way, to be qualified to represent us, and had to be without sin. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 says this, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus had to be like you, yet without sin, so that he could represent you and offer a better sacrifice, namely himself. 
the more and more you study the scriptures and see the plan of God, the more and more you are amazed. This is a story like none that has ever been written. That we would need a new high priest and that high priest would have to be God himself taking on flesh. And that God himself taking on flesh would have to die for you. This is why when Jesus offered himself upon the cross, he uttered those final words, it is finished. And it was an exclamation. It was finished because the payment and atonement was made and accomplished. The wrath of God meant for you was poured out on his son. This was such an occasion that we will never see again because it says he was sacrificed once for all. There is no need for this to continue happening. Jesus' sacrifice of himself was sufficient. The King of kings, Lord of lords, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross so that he might save sinners like you and me. This is no ordinary occasion. In fact, the scriptures say this, and behold, this is after he died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the son of God. Look at what happened when the payment was made. That veil was torn. Access to God was accomplished. It's amazing. And also a very real display of Jesus triumphing over death. The tombs were opened. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. That would have been amazing. Wouldn't that be an encouragement to you if just out of nowhere, 300 saints burst forth from their grave and said, Christ is real, follow him. That's what happened because the grave can't hold on to us. This is the son of God. So why did Jesus have to take on flesh in his incarnation? He had to, to fill the role of high priest and sacrifice. He's the mediator and the one that is offered. Verse 18 even expands on this. It says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Don't you just read that and first of all say, praise the Lord. But second of all say, Look at the tenderness of Christ's love for me. He himself was tempted in that which he suffered. He's able to come to my aid. Just in case you missed it, these first or these few verses shed light on two primary things. Today, through this passage, you have seen that he had to share in flesh and blood to crush 
and destroy Satan. That's one of the three big enemies. He destroys and crushes Satan by rendering him powerless as he has destroyed Satan's weapon that is wielded against us, the power of death. That power has no sting. And then, in defeating death, you and I are freed from the slavery to the fear of death. Believer, I say this, I hope you can can sense it with love. If you fear death and yet have believed on the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there's a disconnect going on. You need not fear it. And I get it, there are some aspects of it that are unknown, but rest in what is known. Rest in what is known, believer, because Jesus came and died. When you breathe your last breath, it will be the greatest day of your life. There's no, you will never look back on this earth and think, I wish I had that back. You will never look back on the earth and say, I would trade this. No way. You all know this sometimes. In fact, we read the scriptures and sometimes we feel bad for Lazarus because he's like, really? Like, I mean, yes, you're here, but can't I just enjoy you in glory? I'm sure he was happy to see Jesus, but nothing can compare to this glory. And it would be enough, right, if if Jesus just offered us freedom from from the fear of death as slaves. He doesn't offer that to you as slaves. He offers it to you as sons, brethren, children. The angels, I, I just, I'd love to think about what in the world the angels are thinking. This is why their songs will never end. Glory to God. I can't, they, they're, they're probably thinking that we've not, we have never experienced this grace, this freedom. But thirdly, he came to offer you help. And that might seem simple, but maybe you've seen this in your own life. You know how hard it is at times to offer help to someone because whether it's, you're just lazy or being selfish, but try, try having somebody walk right up to you punch you in the face, step away and say, hey, can you help me with uh, mowing my lawn for me? And you'd be like, excuse me? That is absurd. Because your sense of justice is, I'm going to practice conditional love towards them. But how much more weighty are the sins that we have committed against God And yet, in his kindness, he sees us like someone that is drowning. And the crazy thing is, you and I aren't even asking for help. We love our rebellion. We love it. And yet he snatches us up, saves us, and offers us help. Fourthly, He had to take on flesh to become the better high priest and sacrifice. 
But as we conclude, I don't want us to miss this second aspect of something you need to take away. I want you to see the immeasurable love that Christ has for you. Hebrews has shown us thus far that Jesus is superior to anyone and anything. He's the creator. He is the Messiah. He is God. He took on flesh, made himself lower than the angels to come to this earth to die a brutal death at the hands of wicked sinners according to the perfect plan of God so that you might be saved from your sins. This doctrine of the incarnation cannot be just head knowledge to us. It cannot be. It must inspire worship, and not just worship for a moment, but worship every day of our lives. He has not just saved you from your sins, but he has elevated you to a privileged position as children, brethren, co-heirs with Christ. We live for this king, this Messiah king, And when you see this king and the vastness of his love for you, it eradicates the drudgery and duty of the Christian life. It turns our thinking from, okay, it's Christmas time. I guess I need to sprinkle in a little Jesus here and there to make it about the proper thing to it's all about Jesus. I have to talk about him. It turns the, I don't know if I feel like coming to church today because I'm kind of tired or it's been a long week too. I cannot wait to sing the praises of my Lord, hear his word, encourage other believers and serve the king in all the capacities that I have. It turns the, I'll get around to my devotions today to I must see the Lord. I must behold him in his glory from his word and I must know how I can live as a living sacrifice to my king who offered me help when I did not want it. It turns the, I'll deal with this sin later because it's not that bad or as bad as someone else to, I must be rid of this sin now because it offends my God, my savior, the one who came to die for me. It robs me of joy and pulls me away from the things that I should be doing. My friends, we're not perfect in this, of course, but this must be our pursuit and aim because Christ is worthy of every pursuit, every ounce of energy you have. You love this king who has defeated sin for you, Satan and death, and you love him. And if you love him, you will live for him. Let's pray. Lord, the amazing thing is that these truths are even more glorious than we can fathom. There is not an English word or a word in any language to adequately express the weight of your glory. And yet, 
You have so regarded us as your children that you would come, take on flesh, to crush Satan, to disarm him by defeating death, and to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, help us to live in this this truth every day. But especially in this Christmas season, as we consider your incarnation, the beautiful reasons why. And Lord, as we are about to sing, help us to rejoice with those words. It is finished because it was finished upon that cross. Pray this in your name. Amen.